and welcome to this, another episode of Frame and Reference. I'm your host, Kenny McMillan, and you're listening to episode 107 with Anastas Mikos, ASCGSC, DP of Cabinet of Curiosities, The Autopsy. Enjoy. Have you, uh, have you been watching anything cool recently? Uh, watch anything cool. Mm. Um, no, I have a, our colleagues, um, uh, DP who attended, um, uh, can, and she says there's some great stuff out there, but no, I have not nothing that is just busy, just busy. And then when I'm not busy, uh, you managed to catch me in Manhattan before I went down to, I um, actually have a boat down in the Chesapeake Bay. Oh yeah. I had heard you, uh, mentioning that in a different interview about, yeah, I was on a boat. yeah, well, well also just when the restrictions came around, you were like, all right, <laughs> I'm out to see. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. oh yeah. <laughs> this is basically what it is. So once that habit kicks in, you know, a lot of reading gets done, but not too much of watching, you know, because of, uh, I'm still a huge fan of the big screen, yeah, and I'm not, yeah. and uh, it's difficult for me to watch serialized things. I'm not really big on serials. I have uh, a, yeah, I have a similar compulsion. If it's like a six episode series, you know, I, I know like how long it's yeah. going to be an anthology or whatever. Mm-hmm. I can get in on that. But when it's ongoing, like even something like Succession, I was like, not not in a huge rush to get caught up in the same way right. that like, for instance, Cabinet of Curiosities was like, oh, I'll bang through this in, you know, one shot. Cause it's, right. it's it has basically finality a different, to it. It has finality and it also has a different, totally different dramatic arc and a totally yeah. different kind of storytelling. You know, uh, the, the purpose of a, a long episode or a long season is to make sure that people tune back. Right. That That is the actual drive what that arc is in that episode, you know, would leave enough stuff hanging so that somebody comes back. Right. In feature work or other kinds of much more defined work. It's just totally different kind of story. I believe, I mean, so the structure is different. So the photography is different. So blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Well, and, and I suppose the less so now, but certainly, uh, in the length of time that you've worked in cinematography, uh, television cinematography and film cinematography two are completely separate things nowadays it's a little closer but uh if you were good yeah, at one so the, probably wanted to stay there right right i mean i'm um, still gosh the major difference is uh, aside from time and time and money has even gotten closer uh is scale you know i mean people have big tvs but they're still not the size of a 30-foot screen or 40-foot screen so um so you can get one quote gets away with a lot more in television that's the one thing about it um in terms of just the thing and the other thing though is for the most part um when you're on a series and you're back in katie's bedroom for the 15th time right night interior katie's bedroom katie talks on phone um you know through the window yeah like, okay, so what are we doing here? You know, um, because it's also the role of the cinematographer to keep tone and camera within the same uh, space with different directors coming in, you know, so. Sure. So th- therefore then it becomes, well, people need to know that it's like, it's doing a franchise movie. Marvel gotta look like Marvel. Right. You know, 
and Spider-Man got to look like Spider-Man, you know what I mean? Uh, whatever next one is can't be a breakout. And when it is a breakout, people go bananas. Right. And, and they re, you know, it's formulaic for a reason because people want, they want what they know. They don't want to be figuring anything out when it's yeah. episode eight. <laughs> right. I've interviewed a couple of the Marvel a couple of the folks who worked on the Marvel films and I was, yeah. and I kept trying to probe, like, how do you guys, how are they keeping it consistent? You know, are, uh, are they forcing, uh, certain colorists on you? Are they, are they forcing camera packages on you? And the, and the answer that, uh, Greg Middleton gave me that I was like, Oh fucking duh was they allow everyone to use each other's LUTs. Yeah. I mean, it's all, I was like, oh, stuff. yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Didn't even think that Marvel just had like a library of LUTs that are like, yeah, if you want, you know, if you want the whatever, the the Iron Man LUT, you just take that. <laughs> and that's the way, that. But, that, but that's the way it works, too. I mean, it actually is very interesting that way. And of course, you know, Marvel has a, uh, such a um, control over their imagery yeah. uh, in post. I mean, you know, we shoot the scene. Um, I've shot a, a, a series, Marvel series, and we shoot the scene. Yeah, Miss Marvel, right? You know, you shoot, yeah. Uh, you shoot the, you know, the actor, you shoot the background play on every shot. I mean, just in case we want to replace the actor. Right. If two people sitting, eight people around a dining room table, after we're done with our close-up, the actor gets up and we roll camera. So is, are you doing a... And, that, uh, and then while they're doing their... Hmm? Are you doing, are you just doing a lot of like, um, uh, match moving or, um, what do you call it? Remote no, head stuff. There's a fair amount of it, but it really has to do with the control of, you know, what happens if we do want to take that actor and put him in a different scene, you know, I mean, so certain times we'll just throw, we'll do the entire scene, then throw a green screen behind the scene and they'll do it another table with a green screen. Then we'll FO the actor, FO the green screen and just shoot the background. And now That's of course every. Well, part of it is also, remember, um, one of the huge questions that the writers are out on, that DGAs tried to settle, that the SAG is coming up with is, what is the future of AI? Mm -hmm. And how is it going to be used by the conglomerates, by the corporations, within the creative and proprietary, the creative and um ownership of image and what is the creative process and when you start to be able to scan everybody's face and also have their backgrounds and everything else you can construct your own sensibility of, uh, and your own film and one of the i i know big sticking points is because now uh, there was actually a court case about it and i'm trying to remember the who's and why's of it where an actor um, not only was, uh, so normally contractually, you the actor's voice has to be the actor's voice. Is this Chris? Yeah, somebody. It might have been that. For uh, but, Back to the Future? Yeah, it might have been that. I don't remember. But yeah, I mean, you know about that then. So, I mean, I don't, I, I don't even talk about it because basically. Oh, no, go ahead. No, I was just trying to. No, no, but the reality the audience yeah, might yeah, not yeah, know. Yeah, but yeah. Obviously the issue is, you know, contractually now, you can't use another actor's voice as, as whoever this person is. But there is nothing in the contract that says you can't use an AI voice to make it sound like. Right. You know? And then at that point, we 
routinely put tears on somebody's face. Right. Routinely. You know? Um, or take them away because we think they're crying too much. But then all of a sudden you're changing a performance. Where does that end? When all of a sudden you can actually make the mouth move in a certain way and the eyebrows move and start when you change the entire scene and change the entire tone of the, you know, whatever it is. So whatever this actor brought to the brought to the table and whatever they own as performance. That's right. you know, because that's authorship. And so that's a huge sort of very sticky place that we're going down in the um the fast food world of films right well and it is it is kind of a fascinating fuzzy line isn't it because like we've been perfectly fine with art directing the scene a little bit you know removing some elements here elements there that fucks with the uh production designer's job but you know whatever whatever and or split comps you know maybe the two actors didn't say those things at the exact same times but all right timing fine 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 but yeah the whole um the tears thing I hadn't even thought of, but I did see that demo where they remapped this woman's face and had her vo uh, her voiceover actress do the um, words and her mouth was adjusted so that it looked like she was speaking uh, Spanish. Like right, right in sync, right in sync. So yeah. it, it becomes this very crazy thing, you know, and and the, there is a tacit understanding on set between production designer and DP that these are, you know, I mean, for the most part, it's the same way editorially. The production designer and DP have a tacit understanding of these are the tools I gave you, right, right, to work the scene with. Now I like the chair over here, but the light looks better over there, you know. And we have to move that out, you know. I mean, presumably on films we've all gone through it and approved the said sets beforehand, but often you know you go, eh, that's not working out, you know. I gotta, you know, move, move this to here and that to there. And the same thing with editorial is very clearly it is for the DP and the director relationship saying, these are the tools I gave you to edit this together. Right. You know, I had a editor the other day, I'm in the middle of timing something and with the director and I'm then, uh, saying they were so the next picture we should do is, um, should be on film. And I said, yeah, that'd be great. You know, um, just so you know, I, you know, I always put a hard man in on film and he goes why i said because i can right. and the editor goes well what do you mean i go a well, hard man that means that you can't move the frame around you know and he goes well what do you mean i mean that you can't do what i see you doing in this thing which is right. to change my frame which uh, right because i had a certain intent but it's only in reciprocity you did not invite me into the editorial suite to think whether or not four frames off of this cut was, was two frames too many. Right. You know, I mean, if it's going to be collaborative, then it needs to be a two way street in, in all departments. And this is the same thing with we do something, you hand it over, you know, but obviously we do it for studios because they're the ones who are paying us and then they own it. And then all of a sudden we have the person laughing in the scene um, right. as opposed to crying. And it's a different actor. There you go. Yeah. Well, and a, the, a hard mat, <laughs> I haven't even thought about that in a while because so many people are like, yeah, we're shooting Venice so we can shoot full frame so we can figure out the exact framing after the fact, you know, or we're shooting, sorry, not full frame, but, um, um, yeah, yeah we're shooting a full frame or open gate or, or we're shooting 8K, but we're framing for four. 
And then yeah. there's all that space everywhere, you know? And they used to be, of course, in, in the film world, we used to always do that, you know, for visual effects. And sure, we get it. You know, I get it too on, on the other stuff. You know, oh, sure, we can, you know, stabilize, like, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of reasons to do it. Um, but I think that's also, it speaks to the team that gets put together, which is, that's why features are different than, than um, series and episodics. Because for the most part, the DP doesn't time the episodes of an episodic. Right. For the most part, it's a showrunner that goes in there that makes it look like all the other ones. That's got it. How do you, how do you, uh, is it just by using, you know, now you've got LEDs so you can punch a little more, let's say pre-grade into the image, but, um, without having to fuss around with gels, but, uh, is that how you kind of author the image a little bit more when you know it's just going into an anonymous color stands of the showrunner? Do you just, or do you kind of, how do you, how do you take ownership of that image before it gets to that point? The, the issue, that's a huge cinematography issue. It's something that Imago is um, fighting. And um, in terms of authorship laws, the United States uh, has none for the cinematographer. You know, I mean, creator of the image has no authorship of image. Creator of music has authorship. Music creator of uh, creator performance has authorship. Creator of image does not. And it, it's a, it's a, um, question that is certainly niggling and certainly you know um on, on on my mind when i'm doing a job and if it's a series um which i don't do too many hours but when i am doing that you know i understand and everybody understands one is um it's an agreed upon look right right you know from when you first start you know so it's only when there's a change in DPs or something where some new person comes in and, and goes, well, we want to do this. And go, well, that's not what that is. So again, signing, I, I did a, um, I wanted to purge things. And, yeah. Uh, Done a couple of those, eh? No, just one. Forever purge and then, oh, I am deep. Oh, no, no, no. I'm, the I'm, first I'm purge. Forever purge. Yeah, I did the first purge, but the forever purge, um, that was in the middle of the pandemic and the DP couldn't come to the United States. So I shot the tail end of the movie, but I don't take credit for the film at all. I mean, I just, yeah, I did that kind of thing. So anyway, the, uh, uh, yeah, helped out. Yeah. But well, I remember go talking to the, uh, the producers of said film. Um, and as my first question is, this is a franchise. Yes. Do you want it to look like the franchise? You know, cause what will I bring to the table? Well, you tell me first because I, I can bring a whole lot to the table, but if you ultimately want to look like that, then I go, yeah, I can, I can do that. Yeah, yeah, I can do that too. Yeah. So that's sort of the same sort of thing on the series. There's not much you can do and because we're pretty much mandated on series to shoot raw. Sure, yeah. And was it, then it's all about the deep area. So no matter what light you put on it, it's raw. So unless you actually shoot the whole thing under red light, Right, right. Do you do you find that? Uh, oh, I just had two questions. Have you used the Alexa thirty five yet? Yeah. Do did you use the textures in it, or were you forced to just shoot raw? Yeah, because I, I it feels cool, but at the same time, I'm like I feel like everyone's just gonna lean back on safety and not uh, burn in a textural look, you know. 
Yeah, I mean, for the most part. Yeah, at least bent on safety. I grew up learning how to shoot film. Right. Right. So, um, and then it was film stocks, and it was the choice of film stocks, uh, which then was literally baked in by the nature of if you're shooting Fuji or if you're shooting 218 or whatever, whatever you're shooting. Um, but quite honestly, the computing power of the resolve these days. Yeah. Particularly with the AI coming into it. I mean, that's like a whole other world uh, in terms of what that's able to do. And how it's it can relight. Yeah, I've used the much. relight thing in resolve right now. It's, it's yeah, yeah, a yeah. two node solution. Yeah. Um, so then you're going, so you can't approach, I mean, if you emotionally approach a project that somebody's going to fuck this up, that's a pretty terrible place to be. Right. You know, yeah. so, um, so the best thing what I do is, I mean, I, um, what still has uh, an organic feel to it is the glass, the glass in front. Mm. You know, that's the first thing that the light's going through and that will affect more than any chip because, you know, you shoot, basically I can time a DXL to look like an array. Right. and look like a, a red, you know? I mean, you get in there long enough and, and sure, three images side by side and you start to notice the differences, but, you know, it's nobody's going to look at it on their home televisions because those are so far out of whack. But you throw yeah. a vintage lens on there as opposed to a, a Zeiss or, you know, or a, a signature or something, then all of a sudden it's like, well, bang, you know, well, yeah, you can't, you can't make that look like that because of that lens. But now we're going into whole totally different places with virtual lenses, which is, I was just looking at an article the other day. Yeah. Who was I? interviewing i feel like i was just talking maybe i was just chatting with them because i've got a few friends that work in lenses um mm -hmm. you know jay holden of course and uh someone was telling me that they were modeling lenses to be able to just click a button and have that quote-unquote look applied to a theoretical neutral image but i don't know how you would do so i mean i'm sure someone knows someone's a genius but like how to apply fall off in the same way like would you just shoot a lens that's has like infinite depth of field and then somehow yeah, get do. a depth that's map and then fun. yeah that's what you do and my guess my ultimate question is um yeah that really works for mcdonald's and it really works for burger king it really does you know you right. push the button and the secret sauce is the same except when you go to paris that secret sauce is <laughs> tailored for that image but it doesn't work for when i want to really have a nice meal right you know when i like the other night i went to this wonderful new Mexican fish place here in New York. And the oysters were amazing. It looked like a little ginger. I mean, it was just literally right, like right out of some little spot in Oaxaca, a really elegant restaurant. But the point is, um, you had somebody in the kitchen that had full knowledge of the creative process in a very personalized way versus somebody who was, um, not to say untalented, but uh, less skilled. Sure. Pushing the secret sauce button. Right. You know? And well, and, oh, go ahead. Nothing. Which would you rather eat or which one would I rather watch? For me, personally, I don't eat McDonald's and things because I know exactly what it tastes like.
Right. So like, yeah. So, you know, it's the same thing uh, when it, when it does visual effects and I keep on looking at visual effects to keep them feeding them back. And I go, okay, so where's the chaos? And they go, well, where's the chaos in the shot? Where's the uncontrollable part? Where's the part that, oops, they made a mistake? You know, which, oh, which is actually a name of a dessert by a chef in Italy, which was, oops, it's a mistake. And it literally looks like a crack something that he serves. And it was supposed, I mean, I've never eaten there, but it was supposed to be, you know, chef's kitchen. I think he's Michelin number two last year type of thing. And what brought him to that place was his chaos, his mistake brought him to a place. So you put the lens on wrong, there's a smudge in it. Uh, they didn't wipe the thing quite right, you know, and you go, you know, there, there's that surprise or joy of creativity of what, what you've got as opposed to push the button. Yeah. We can show you 15 flares. I was, uh, there was a lot of AI discourse on, on Twitter, uh, mm -hmm. which is a hellscape of a website, but uh, it was a lot of you know what people colloquially colloquially call uh tech bros who are like we're gonna change everything you know photographers and filmmakers like get ready because we're coming because we we can type some things in and it'll be perfect or whatever and my argument which i still stand behind is that yeah okay you can absolutely go to ikea and get functional inexpensive relatively good looking furniture but it doesn't matter how long that exists or how good it gets if you want something of value you will go to a carpenter and have them make you a table or a bookshelf or whatever i because a human totally, made it. absolutely and i agree with you totally on the sense of i was having this discussion with my son interesting enough about twitter and instagram everything else and and uh inherently in the human condition things that have value require sacrifice mm-hmm mm whether it's yours or somebody else's, they require a certain amount of effort and sacrifice to either make that an amazing painting that took them 2,000 hours and 6 million little freaking fucking dicky dots on them, you know, right. or that handmade thing that you're talking about with, you know, the, the artisan cut themselves seven times to get the curve just right. It requires that. And because um, without sacrifice and then it becomes banal and banality is something that we can get anywhere so i i totally yeah the tech bros more power to them not interested um but but the marketplace is driving all of that well and like like you said it, it works for mcdonald in the same way you know oh if i can type into if i'm an advertising executive and i literally just need a product shot in a white you know, yes, that's absolutely going to take some photographers, uh, you know, uh, lifeblood away because there there are people out there that just do those box, the, what do you, oh, absolutely. box shots or whatever. Um, and I, I think those people should have their jobs because that's a not a diff, uh, easy thing to do. And a lot of those are pretty. But I mean, you watch a car commercial, that last shot of the car sitting there, it's, it's always a fucking CG car. Like, oh, always. We've been doing this for a while. We have been doing it for a while, you know, and it's a CG car driving along the car thing too. It's it's actually a real car base with expandable uh, wheel length and wheelbase. Yeah. Are they still using that? Yeah. The Blackbird? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No kidding. Yeah. They still use that. 
because because the there's there's certain there's certain things that's way cheaper, which is the interaction between tire and and environment. So if you're shooting in a real environment, and then it's way cheaper to try and get that interaction done, you know. Um, and then, like you were saying, they can use that plate for their next commercial if they need. Oh it's not a pickup now, but it's got the same wheelbase. <clears throat> yeah, but the question and, and those things come or advertising because I've noodled around with the AI stuff is even in advertising, does it get you? Where's the beef? Does it get you? I love New York. Does it get you the iconic? phraseology that six people sitting around a table go yeah that's right that's it that's yeah. it you know because every time and i know it's i call ai you know plagiarism basically you know at the moment it absolutely is yeah yeah and of course the creative process is that because we're all influenced you know but um but i think there's something that changes because of chaos, because the organic nature of humans, that we might be thinking of that thing, but somehow we remember something from when we were three, and that made it work. Right. Well, it, you know, if we were if we're going to say like, oh, I'm using anamorphics on this project because I liked Indiana Jones back in the eighties, that's a that's a far cry from I lifted the absolute exact look of this scene from Indiana Jones and replaced the characters, but like the lighting and the scene and everything are exactly the same, but it has an anamorphic look. Like those are two completely different. And it works arms the other way. I totally agree. It works the other way. Um, several years ago, I watched back to back the Blu-ray series of, um, alien. Hell yeah. Yeah, I've, I've done that a few times. Probably every other year I do that. And, and, right. And I go, Ridley's looked like it was shot yesterday. I, I say that exact phrase so many times about that Blu-ray cut. I look at it and I go, oh, the other two? Totally dated. Totally within their time period. Totally within that thing. So, yeah. There's certain things that, you know, certain... I mean, I, I guess my point is, is that... As far as going back, it also goes to the forward thinking thing where you're, you, you are with artificial intelligence, you can only, I believe at the moment anyway, um, build upon something that has been built on before. Uh, all ostensibly is, correct. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm grabbing that and grabbing that and have all this input from the Google over the world. Right. But it, it's very difficult for it to it, the program to imagine something that it doesn't have input for. Right. You know, and sometimes that's what, well, that's what genius is. It's like, how did you think of that? No idea. You know, yeah. that's the, you know, and from a visual standpoint, from music, from everything, you know, so it's, it's an interesting place. Anyway, is this a topic that we're actually supposed to be talking about? Yeah, or yeah, like it's all good because we're rambling. <laughs> I told you, I told you at the beginning, you could talk about pencils for twenty minutes if you want. But I didn't want to talk about pencils, but I didn't know if there was any specificity that Perry Brookman had me. Oh no! Or are we all good? We're good. Um, but right. that it that is a good kind of segue into uh, if we want to get into the nuts and bolts of it. Uh, uh, speaking of people just coming up with stuff. 
Guillermo del Toro's always been a uh, I've always been a big fan of his because uh, all of his films feel very inventive, even though he's taking from places that I think that may be it is that he's taking from places that I'm not familiar with. So it's all new to me, but uh, very inventive person, especially like you're saying, musicians are very inventive in the same way that AI hey, can't be. But um, I suppose in the more uh, press side of things, how did you get involved with uh, the Cabinet of Curiosities? Oh, um, through a producer, um, Phil Whaley, I shot a film called The Empty Man. Mm. And The Empty Man was directed by uh, David Pryor. And um, it was at a time when Fox was going through its machinations and it didn't get quite get, it's a very cerebral examination of um, an existential question framed in a horror genre, <laughs> right? Um, and David, um, so anyway, that, that came out and David got the gig to do an episode. So Guillermo had seen that, asked David to direct it, you know, and then David said, hey, we're going to do another thing together. So that, that's the the short answer to that one. Yeah. the uh, I, I have to say, your episode's probably my favorite out of all of them. Uh, I think it was, it was, they're all great. I love them all. Yeah, I think are. Guillermo could probably uh, take one photo and I'd watch it for two and a half hours. But... Um, I think yours was probably my favorite. Plus, uh, F. Marie Abraham, the best. Oh God, what a watch that dude for. I hear like many times. Yeah, you could watch him like just cooking hot dogs and and not even serving them on a bun. He just cook your hot dog and put it on something else. You go, okay, this is really good. Um, and he's hilarious. He's incredibly reverent. Um, I mean, you know, I mean, he's, he's old enough to deserve the right to be irreverent about anything. Right. So that was great fun. I mean, I have to say that was great fun. Um, and it was interesting because David had a very, I, I kind of tuned into David's sort of sensibilities. Um, so I, I think that's after doing a feature with him, I think that's one of the reasons I got called back um, to, to echo certain things. Um, and he is, um, he's a huge fan of camera with intent, you know, um, and part of doing the cabinet of curiosities was to try and keep it. And I'm not even saying the Guillermo wheelhouse, you know, somewhere on Guillermo's boat, you know, and right. didn't have to be that close to the wheelhouse, um, right. because they're all so disparate and basically the scripts were worth I think the scripts were the um, connective tissue in terms of the way they were structured for the most part, um, because the photography certainly wasn't from one episode to another. Right. There were no restrictions. It was like, shoot it the way you want to shoot it, you know, do it the way you want to do it. Um, but somewhere, I, I think I said this, uh, somewhere in the back of my mind, it was always, oh, this is Guillermo's thing. So maybe we should like use a couple, a couple nods to the palette. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And, um, Tamara was just a uh, phenomenal production designer. And yes. I mean, I say it everywhere because unlike a series where it's about a cop show and we have a cop house and have a thread and so therefore 15 sets get built or 20 sets get built and you have six episodes and, you know, you go from one to another, everything was just separate. 
you know, she literally had, you know, six movies to do. Right. That had nothing to do with each other. And sometimes trying to rework one set to, for like two months from now, that might get turned into something else. Right. You know? So it was, um, yeah, hats off to her. She's wonderful. And I think she, and you know, she got nods on it as well. And she didn't, she does a lovely work, uh, with Guillermo on her, on his movies as well. So, yeah. Did you find that because, um, not all of, I mean, a lot of the shorts or whatever, whatever you want to call them, uh, episodes are ostensibly take place in one place. Did you find that because you're basically your episode all takes place in, uh, that main chunk and then the little side freezer or whatever. But, uh, did you find that that was an advantage and kind of unlocked a lot of your freedom or, or oddly enough, oddly enough, um, when you break down the schedule, mm. I think we had 15 days, I think, or maybe we wanted 15 days. And, maybe we and we're given eight. <laughs> yeah, we, you know, one of those things, whatever that was it, was, it was more than two weeks. So I think it was two, 10 days plus a little bit or something. It was in the pandemic too. Um, what you recognize is that um, most of it was shot on location. Mm. I think we only spent three days in the autopsy room out of the 17B oh. schedule. A lot of that has to do with comp- Well, a lot of it has to do with a the efficiency of shooting on a stage. Yeah, you know, you know where you are literally. Lot. I mean, you light it, and you know. Now we're moving cameras, turning lights on and off, as opposed to driving, loading, unloading, blah blah blah. Um, so it's a, so it's a little somehow possibly misleading that you, one feels like, oh gosh. For me, most of the work was on location. I, I, in my head, that's a location thing. That's interesting. You know, just I mean, because of. When I looked at the schedule, it was like rrr, 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 two days, one day, two days, two days there, oh, three days. Oh shit, this company moved twice. Oh my gosh, do 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 end of schedule one, two, three. Oh, oh, okay, four days on stage. Right. You know, that's cool. It's just how we look at stuff. Yeah. Well, and also, I I did not rewatch it before this. I'm I, I am going a little oh. bit off memory, but because uh, I watched that thing the second it came out, like when they oh. when they were advertising that, I was like, that's yep, yeah, yeah, yeah that's for me. Give me that. Like, Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I, I don't know what they're doing. I, I hear there well might be another burst like that because it, it was so well received. But but you know who knows what Netflix is doing. Yeah, I, I know some people at Netflix. Oh, maybe maybe anyway. Uh, can you talk to me a little um, kind of on a on a ground level about what the lighting plot was in the autopsy room? Because it's a gorgeous uh, look that you achieved in that small. Yeah, it's not that small of a space, but. Um, in that room, you know, you, you've done quite well. I love the color contrast between uh, like the blues and the oranges and everything and kind of what your, was there any references for that? Did that kind of- Yeah, the whole thing had a reference because Pryor, David, wanted, he said, let's watch Deer Hunter. Mm. And part of it was because it's a favorite film of his, but also in terms of tone, it's in the same period. It was shot in the 70s, right? Right. In a small little mining town. But interestingly enough, it felt like the 50s because that's the nature of the 70s in a small little mining town. Sure. Um, And so that's what 
our production design was kind of pushing back with like we're shooting this is it's a 70s movie it's a 70s element but production design we're going to be in 50s and 40s looking buildings in a town that looks like it was the newest building that was built in the 30s um and so i was embracing that in terms of the look in terms of for the lighting as well in terms of sources and whatnot you know um and not trying to go too saturated and everything else with, with the color palettes but still um and still in the back of my mind going all right you know this is you know this is guillermo likes the golden tones and he likes the contrasting against the greens and whatnot and you know and um it's a horror film but at the same time it's playing on a television so i have to be careful about how dark dark really is right i mean i remember the it was game of thrones yeah and um the entire world went we didn't get to see that and it's because the entire world had their television set on a right different, <laughs> a different setting it, that i've always yeah been, i mean you go yeah. i was gonna say that like so i'm a freelance colorist as well and oh, okay. right now i'm having the conversation with a client about they came over looked at my calibrated screen i know the calibrated screen works i've seen it in theaters matches mm -hmm. we're good and this person was like, well, if it, it doesn't look like that on my laptop. And I was like, right, but my screen's calibrated and yours is who knows what. And they were like, well, if I have a MacBook and most people have MacBooks, shouldn't we calibrate it to my MacBook? And I was mm -hmm. just like, that's a great thought, except for then it'll look like, let's say this thing lives on the internet forever and gets really popular. And then screens get better and better and better. As time progresses, you're short will your project will look worse and worse and worse because it was calibrated to an unstandard target and not what is objectively correct right and that's the whole thing about calibrating a macbook is that even on a macbook you know you can change its gamma on the screen and, and everybody got that little brightness button right that they put wherever they want that was the other thing they had it they had their brightness jacked up to a thousand and they're like i'm seeing a lot of artifacting and i was like well 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 you know don't touch that button yeah, don't do that. Yeah. Doctor, it hurts uh, when I do this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't do that. There's a lot of that. So, and so it's the same sort of sensibility. And I do remember, and, and back in the film days, uh, the only time I ever got to be sure that the when we were doing prints, right, it was always a range in, in terms of foot Lamberts. It was somewhere between 15 and 18 is what the screen had to be in because sort of like, Ampas, uh, not Ampas, um, NTSC had sort of said that, okay, movie screen should be at this particular level. And then, you know, I had a film open up um, one of my very first features at the Zigfield, you know, and I go flying over to the Zigfield, which is an enormous screen. It's like, you know, it's like the Egyptian, it's, you know, it's like a yeah. thousand seaters. It's huge. And guess what? From, you know, a hundred yards away, the screen is nowhere near, right. <laughs> you know? And, you know, the guys are upstairs trying to put a new bulb in and every other thing. And, you know, I'm thinking we got three days. Can we strike new prints because it's a premiere? I mean, yeah. So as much as we, um, sometimes as much as I shoot the uh, digital of it all, I do right. like knowing that, you know, the Barco in the back is pretty much the Barco in the back, no matter where I go. Yeah. Uh, that kind of that thing. actually, that actually does bring up a question that I, I do enjoy asking uh, folks who, have a, a hefty experience with film and then transition mm -hmm. to digital 
uh, and that is, um, what are some of the things that, uh, you know, film gave you, I, I remember hearing you talk about the importance of dailies and how that was, uh, an experience that changed. What did you listen to? Uh, I don't know. It's like anyway. a few years ago. <laughs> okay. Yes. Uh, there, uh, there's a few like two hour jams I had to listen to uh, oh two speed, but, um, you know, what, yeah, what things about film do you miss and, uh, what things about, uh, digital do you think have, have, are, you know, good, better? The thing about digital that's better is what we were just talking about, which is the standardization of exhibition, mm. you know, that I feel relatively comfortable in the theater that basically the last projection I saw in the DI room is the, is going to be in approximation, very close to that, mm. you know, that's, that's huge. Cause as like, I related the story about the trying to do it otherwise measuring them um what i what i miss aside from like you mentioned dailies what i always tell younger dps that are just starting out and people who i've been mentoring and whatnot is the image lives in your imagination mm. that, that like so when you get to work in the morning after you've spoken about it with the production designer and director a million times the image is in here, and so then, therefore, the job is to translate it out there. Be it, oh my God, it's really sunny, and I gotta fly sixty by thirties out, or whatever it is. Night exterior, night. You know, I mean, people say, oh, day exterior, and I think, oh, that's probably one of my hardest things to ever do, unless right. I'm shooting away northern Canada or somewhere. Um, you know, because consistency. But, 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 what I find is is that. Um, younger DPs cannot imagine a frame without a monitor. Mm, right. Well, we don't have fucking viewfinders. I can't find a viewfinder for the life of me. I know. Um, and, and what I mean by that is they can't even imagine camera placement. They can't imagine lens. Mm. No, that's not right. Let's change it. No, that's not right. Let's change it. Let me look. That's not right. It is the virtuosity of instrument that I miss. And film gave you the training to be have the virtuosity of instrument. There's a plethora of musicians who can compose without an instrument there. Right. They literally hear it and put it down on a piece of paper. And we know some of the big ones from way back and some of the ones today. You know, they don't need a keyboard. They're just listening to music. Um which is incredibly framed yeah. in, ter in terms of a process, which is also incredibly framed as a DP because I don't need a camera. I'm looking at a script and I'm wandering the streets. I can imagine, oh yeah, that would look like that on a 75. It should be a 300. Would you do something like that? I think that's that's the main difference is that the, the lack of immediate response, embracing a latent image allows you to train your mind to imagine things versus react to things and it's the same thing i was talking to the editor uh and, and this my director uh james james demonico purged it um about the avid what he misses what he likes and what he misses you know because he started a film and it was like oh yeah i, I would go home i wouldn't make the cut because if it was a one frame cut i didn't want to watch it go through <laughs> the you know through the uh, the flatbed anymore so I'd have to imagine it or I'd have to wait on it a second. 
Take paper notes. Take paper notes. I mean, you know, and, and, and him being a writer, it speaks to that part of the process where you're looking at a blank piece of paper and you're literally trying to imagine words. You're not just pulling words out of a thing and sticking them in there like the little poetry, magnetic poetry thing on a right. refrigerator. And everybody always has something pithy and you go, yeah, but they gave you those words. <laughs> you, know? you know, every refrigerator looks the same. It, it, you know, it looks profound, but it's really, it's AI. <laughs> we all have it live, laugh, love in the same. Yeah, yeah exactly. They all gave you live, laugh, love. So. Well, and it also gives, I think that um, sort of, I suppose, pre-visualization that you're talking about or, or, or present visualization uh, gives you a target. So when you finally do have the thing in front of you, if anything doesn't match that target, you'll do your best to match it. And if you can't with the tools you're given, you get close and, and accept that. But I think right, change totally. You sure. Um, that, that is, and I don't know how often that happens. I imagine you, you're far well more equipped to, to change. Yeah. Cause then you are otherwise. Because often I would be working with a director, often. Sometimes I'm working with a director and it's not working. And they'd say something. And you go, yeah, okay, let's try it. And it has nothing to do with what you talked about. Uh, but you can just look out into space and go, oh, yeah, that actually might work. Yeah. Well, it, and it's, I've definitely been put in the position as a DP where, you know, you're, you're behind the monitor and you've got director here, producer here ad exec there and they're all pointing and you know everyone's got that piece of tape that says do not touch the monitor but everyone's pointing everybody's uh, touching the going, pointing at something can we change can that come down can this and i'm like we can bring that down and resolve we're like ah yeah but i just like to see it and you're like oh for fuck's sake everyone picks the smallest little thing to obsess over that has no bearing on like the final film itself everyone's like well that that little corner can't do you think people are going to see like no I think part of it is because I was talking to another director and I had a color session um, where the execs were involved and uh, the character was on a Ferris wheel, uh, Santa Monica Pier, on around, 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 and I hear his voice pipe up out of the speaker going, why are the lights moving across your face? And, you know, I stop and I look at my director and I'm thinking, uh, you take that one, okay? Right. <laughs> He's on a Ferris wheel. Have you seen the Santa Monica Ferris wheel? It's very lit up. <laughs> very lit up, and it's moving. Their lights are moving everywhere. Well, I find it distracting. She's on a Ferris wheel. You know, like, many times people will comment because they feel it's their job to comment. Mm. You know? And it's, I think, what you're talking about as a DP when you shoot and you have an ad agency and a director and this and that. And they go, oh, if I don't say something, the, my colleagues will think that I have nothing to say. So right. rather than there is nothing to say, which is very different than I have nothing to say. Right. You know, I mean, I sit through production meetings with nothing to say because I am, you know, there's nothing to say. I have no notes is a, makes a lot of people feel happy. Exactly, and it means- And they'll remember you brought them. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Rather than I have a note, and the note is a stupid one, but I, but at least I'm showing my boss or my somebody that somehow I'm paying attention. Anyway, but yeah, that that's an issue. And uh, so 
uh, I, I had much preferred the, will it look like that question? And I was back in the day where it was like, well, no, this is a black and white monitor where it's in color. <laughs> right off the bat, it's not going to look like that. Okay. Yeah. If you wanted to see what it's going to look like, look over there and look at the scene, you know, and then, you know, use your mental shit. Squint a little bit. Know what a 75 mil looks like uh, at a T1 because uh, we're using, you know, Vantage, uh, Big Two's lenses, and then that'll be what it looks like, just like that, that in there. Um, but if you don't know any of that, then it'll look like what it looks like tomorrow morning. Um, yeah. And there's some of beauty just to the latent image. There is a wonderful surprise that I think energizes the creative process. It's like letting the sauce simmer. Yeah. You know, you put it all in there and you go, this is going to be really good. And then you take it out of the oven six hours later and you go, oh, wow. Because it doesn't taste anything like what you put it in six hours beforehand. Yeah. You know? And then was the talking next day, to... go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was going to say, I was talking to another DP about that exact thing where uh, it, it, kind of what you're saying about dailies in the other interview, which is uh, that energy that you get from it. When, when you wait, you know, it's just delayed gratification. And it's also a surprise because you didn't see what it looked like exactly day of so now you're like oh look we all did a good job or not but you know at the best day well, it, it, it's affirmation and affirmation is really good the particularly when it's not third party but it is it doesn't have a point of view and you you have reaffirmed it for yourself mm. the soup is good why because six hours later i tasted it and i liked it Right now, the soup was pretty sucky because nothing was cooked. Right. There is something that you bring that to the process, and that process among everybody, everybody, I think, makes better work because of it. And again, talking the dailies and the, and the reason that, 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 you know, I mean, James has dailies, but many directors do not, and they don't like the process. And I've always been one to go, but it makes it better. Doesn't like everyone sitting in a room and having a discussion about it. Like doesn't like sharing the uh, diffusion of ownership or something like that. I guess that's what it is. Uh, I guess it's also it. it I think that you have to, because I, I remember being petrified as a B camera operator as I started the business as a B camera operator. Never, it never was a focus for me. But um, we all are petrified of our own inadequacies. Mm. And in dailies, you have to share that with, you know, with your collab, and just because we were all there when we were shooting, doesn't mean that, you know, we're, we're not carrying those insecurities with us. And I think much of that comes from that. And so you get able to shed that, then, then the, the creative process works better. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, and I, I recommend it to every filmmaker to watch, which is Peter Jackson's, uh, get back. The Beatles. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they go, why? And I said, because that's what the creator creative processes that's what collaboration is that somebody brings in a song and sings it poorly in front of their bandmates and their bandmates are non-judgmental listening intently they fuck up what they're fucking up nobody knows where they're going with it somebody says let's sing it off key they go into some other world and start singing a samba 
or some kids thing, they come back again, the juices have now flipped, and all of a sudden you get, when I find myself in trouble as a masterpiece, and you realize, because when he tells a story about that, you go, it had nothing to do with Mother Mary, and you do somebody else, and so-and-so threw that line out there, and you know, that kind of process is really important in a collaborative form, and we don't seem to have that anymore except on these little Zoom calls, which is so antiseptic and, and yeah, and dysfun- dysfunctionally um, non-present, as useful as they are. Yeah. Well, um, I, I believe you started as a musician, right, when you were younger? Kind of, sort of, yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I play music. Yeah, I mean, I play, yeah. Guitars there. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. me and my mother was singer and my husband was a professional musician and so was my mom and I thought that was gonna be a good career path but no. Yeah. Yeah, my my dad was a drummer and got me into Oh, there you go. And, um but something that I've always kind of wrestled with and actually through now hundred and ten episodes of this podcast, uh, have kind of figured out what it was and I because I thought it was more complicated, but it literally was when I was a kid in bands or just goofing mm-hmm. off with my friends, that was such a um, gratifying experience that when I pivoted to film, when I, again, when I was younger, it was still that it was still sitting in a room with your friends making music. And then the further and further I got along into a professional career, the less and less it felt like that. And the more and more it felt like pulling teeth. And, and I've asked so many DPs like who have a background in music, like what are, what is those, what's that thing? And I think you actually just nailed it is it's, the in-room collaboration a lot of dps have talked about how pre-production is their favorite part because it's so imaginative and they're yeah absolutely i mean you know the world is so possible everything but also yeah but again it's the thing that we were you were saying as a musician and uh, and it's the um god you when you get to collaborate with somebody and feel comfortable enough to be foolish mm with the ideal you know i have a wonderful uh, friendship with uh, an amazing camera operator uh, a couple of guys that are just amazing you know mitch dubin and lucas Bielen. and i've known lucas since he was a second he since he was sven nickfest's driver and i was oh. an operator and we bumped into each other because i came down to do steadicam on gilbert grape and we became friends, and then he recommended me as Sven's driver, or I think he might have been a second then or a loader, because we got along, right? To tag along with Sven, and Sven would hire me to operate with him. Uh, the long story and short of that is um, when you're working with somebody who you trust to be foolish, then we could throw ideas out there, and they will help you see through the comedy of them or the absurdity of them into the kernel of what you're looking for mm. latch on to that and then you both take off together you know right. so i would be describing your thought and then all of a sudden this would be looking and goes oh what if you go the other way you know and you yeah oh yeah yeah the other way you know what 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 happens if we play it as a you know as a samba and we're not playing it as a as a waltz you know just lay that beat in Oh, oh, wait a minute. We're onto something. Oh no, maybe too much. Maybe too much. Back off. But we're onto something. You know. Yeah. You can't play Strauss. You know that way. But let's back off a bit, and we might be getting somewhere. You know, well, that's the. Now. 
that's the part that feels good, right? Like the, the, the final product does not feel good. The final product exists and you're like, you can be proud of it, but it doesn't feel, it doesn't give you that same gratification totally, that those totally uh, agreed. sessions. Because give. ultimately the final product is then the, um, outcome of a lot of hard repetitive work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, once, in, in most things, once you get that, like, oh, oh this is working, then you got to, like, really work at it repetitively right. to make sure it's working. And then by the time you get to it, it's like, yeah, okay, you felt the work part of it all, you know? It's like, you know, doing this much of a painting thing, and God, that's pretty brilliant. And then realizing you have to do the whole freaking wall that way. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway. you, had, you had mentioned uh, Steadicam and operating it, and... Um, I wanted to add, because you, you did not invent the Steadicam, but you were next no, no, to the person no. who did. <laughs> well, Garrett Brown is a dear, dear friend, and he was a mentor of mine. So um, he and I met when I was kind of just trying to get into the business, and I was actually a news camera person mm -hmm. who edited and shot news stuff, but like local TV stuff for summer replacement. And um, I assisted him on a couple of Steadicam things that he had done, because he was a DP at the time, a director DP as well, doing commercials. And um, then he had this amazingly brilliant idea to invent something called a Skycam, mm -hmm. which is what we use today on football games. And so- The cable cam thing? Yeah, the four, four cameras, four cables, thing in the middle, NFL, yeah. that thing. Um, and he invented that by talking to, he happened to be on the set of, I mean, it's his story, not mine, but he was having, again, it's collaboration, man. He happened to be on the set of um, Little House on the Prairie, mm -hmm. right, doing Steadicam. He and uh, Landon, right? Wasn't that the actor's name? Oh, I couldn't tell you. I've <laughs> yeah, yeah. seen that show since I was a kid. Oh, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, he also done a lot of movies. Anyway, the guy who brought that to us, had a football star called Merrill Olson, who was pitching the idea like pe more people would watch football if they could only see it from the coach's point of view. Mm -hmm. And it was like, what do you mean? Well, yeah, because it's so interesting when it's on top. When it's on top, it's like a chess game. If you could just follow it around like a chess game and you're not looking at stuff sideways, you'd actually know what's going on. And it's like that little spark that goes to you know the creative process that makes you do that. Yeah, so I held him out on that, on that thing, and that's how I became involved with Steadicam. Because, yeah, well, because I, I, I was interested in because there's technologies will come around that that uh, uh, pretty appreciably change the filmmaking landscape. Mm -hmm. You know, LEDs are one of them, certainly digital cameras. But you know, the, you, I could probably count on one and a half hands how many like major things have come out that absolutely like even LEDs. I mean, lighting. Well, things lighting. that change the language. The way yeah. And the literal language. One of them. Absolutely. Because there, there was all of a sudden a different language. There was a new, yeah. there was a new verb. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. We had, as opposed to a handheld verb and the dolly verb and the crane verb, you know, then there was a different verb, which meant something. And that's, that's what it certainly did. And so I, I was wondering if you uh, recall any interesting, um, anecdotes from when that verb came into the lexicon uh part of it is before the steady cam the advent of the steady cam um it's always been an issue 
and a challenge to describe three-dimensional space in a two-dimensional format. Mm. That's what motion pictures are, you know? How do you give this, just because they move does not mean it has a third dimension. It has the fourth dimension time. Yes, we get that. But what is the third dimension in, 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 in immersing a viewer, an audience, somebody into the idea that we also coexist in, you know, height, depth, and length of something. Uh, and the Steadicam really helped that because all the rest of the instruments, a crane actually moved in three dimensions and a dolly did, but to a very prescribed set of rules. Dolly track came in this length right. and became that big. You know, that's it. So if you want to make a curve, that's the curve you made. Eight right. pieces make 360. There you go. Okay, that's what we got because it fits on the truck. You know, oh, I'm sorry it doesn't do anything in your room or your space or anything. You know, and we design things that walls fly out to try and make it work and all sorts of, you know, incredible machinations. So I think that was part of the thing that the Steadicam did, which allowed the audience to understand and be far more freeing. And then the very first, there's two iconic shots uh, that Garrett both did. One of them was on Bountiful Glory, where it's a crane shot and everybody goes, oh, it's a crane shot and the crane goes down. And we go, oh, that's pretty cool. And all of a sudden, it keeps on going. And the entire audience, Step off. He invented the step the off. <laughs> yeah, and you go, what the fuck? How did that happen? You know, because subliminally, we knew that that's where it was going to stop. Because that's when right. it stopped. Because that's well, we didn't know why, but we'd seen enough of them in our lexicon, you know. And then the other one was behind the tricycle that Stanley did. Right. You know? He did both of those. Garrett did that one. Yeah, Garrett did. Oh that. wow. Yeah. Yeah. Back, that's. I mean. Yeah, yeah. He, he's somebody you should absolutely talk to. A wonderful oh, raconteur. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll put you in touch with him. A wonderful raconteur, a storyteller of the nth degree. Funny as all get out, and a dear buddy of mine, but I'm not going to start telling his stories because there's wonderful yeah. stories. But um, but on Eyes Wide Shut, I will tell you a story that kind of involves Garrett. Uh, so, um, phones rings, it's four o'clock in the morning. I answer it, I'm in New York, and I hear his cast Nikos there, and I go, who is this? It's like four hand, you know, landline, of course, back then. Right. And I hear Stanley. I go, what? And he goes, Stanley Kubrick. And I go, fuck you. <laughs> Good. And my wife says, who was that? And I said, oh, fucking Garrett. I can't believe him. Because <laughs> my buddy used to call people up like Vittorio and give right. them the Italian accent. I told one my friend, oh, Vittorio, I want you to work in a movie with me. Right. So, so I'm... I think it's, it's like Gary, he did that, right? 9 a.m., the phone rings again, and then this time it's a clipped British accent. Right. You know, that Mr. Mr. Kubert wants to talk to me. And I was like, you're kidding me. So that's what happens when you have a friend who cries wolf enough. Right. You fall for it, you know? Because I, I didn't know how many phone calls I would get from Gary saying, oh, you know, either it's Laszlo or it's Bill right. Roche and the accent and everything. We were just lining up and put it on there and say, no, I want you to come and do my movie. And I'm thinking, oh, God, this is not real. Anyway, so I, I, got, uh, I got to give Stanley a good fuck you. 
<laughs> so I'm sure there's people all. And then sadly, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, you know, I also eat that it happens to them all the time. Oh, I bet. Yeah. So there's anyway. the, there's this uh, completely random side thought. There's a story I like. There's this Japanese all female metal band called Bandmade, and they're incredible, uh, mm -hmm. just insane musicians. And I guess Jimmy Page went to one of their concerts and saw the drummer Akane and was like, holy shit, I need to talk to that girl. So he goes backstage and someone leaned in and was just like, hey, Jimmy Page wants to talk to you. Same thing. She's like, fuck off. And then he like oh, pops yeah, his yeah, head yeah. out and she was like, what? Like, like, I know, right. That's what happens. You know, It, it does happen to our to us and our heroes uh, that we, uh, you know, we, we, we can't contextualize them ever calling us or bumping into them or anything else like that. It's kind of right. Um, but yeah, I think there's certain instruments that have done that, you know, um, those kind of milestones. Um, I'm trying to think of, I, I think the other one was the techno crane did it because it, it defined a different kind of movement, you know, uh, lighting and led things, not as much because right. it's more convenience than maybe HMI. I wouldn't even say that because when we looked, when I look at a frame, there's nothing about the lighting unless it's moving lights. From the I guess smaller, road. smaller and more powerful. You know, it's, you can hide them. No, it's, it, there's that, but it's also the the quality of a mover mm -hmm. being a episodal kind of hard shaft was right. something that we could not achieve before. Yep. That's yep. And that's so good. therefore when you looked at the frame, you went, how, what, what is that? What is that happening? What is that shafty thing happening? Because, you know, it was defying the physics of, of, of it was either natural to find the physics of something or the, the color changers on them and stuff like that. But very few things. I mean, ca the camera movement one, I think the, the steady cam one was the huge one. And obviously the advent of the small handheld camera, you know, in the early sixties before that. Well, you know, uh, I've always told people to go back and watch films like silent films, because there's way more camera movement in some of those, uh, maybe not silent, silent films, but the second sound was involved, they had to blimp everything and cameras just got locked off. Well, no, absolutely. Very much so. And if you look at some of the um, early Harold Lloyd stuff, uh, which is the comedies, um, and Charlie Chaplin, not as much because it was a little bit more proscenium, but him as a filmmaker liked putting the camera in places that it was like, well, let's put it there because nobody's ever seen it there before. You know, right. nobody's ever imagined that. And I'm kind of going back to the whole AI thing. It's like, um, you know, if it doesn't have it in its data bank, is it going to show you a little camera move? You know, if it didn't know about a steady cam, would it connect those things? I don't know. I mean, it depends on how it's programmed and every other thing, I suppose. Um, yeah. There's a new camera out now. I want to make sure. I don't remember the manufacturer, but it's a box without a lens in all it does. And it knows, it knows through GPS and et cetera, et cetera. I'm, it looks like it's got the weird, um, uh, yeah, it's got some sort of antenna array or something. Yeah. And yeah, it goes, okay, right. well, we will composite an image from all the other images that have been here. 
Right. You know? Using GPS and accelerometer and <laughs> oh, and time of day and altimeter. It has a yeah, uh, yeah, everything. Like altimeter. Time of day, altimeter. Yeah. Right. Exactly. It has it. You know, has it all. You know. What I mean, raining today. Stuff that it's trying to do, and it's just going to compose a photograph for you or an image, a composite image. And uh, it's like, um, fascinating yeah. science project. Yeah, I, I agree. It's a fascinating science project. I'm kind of wondering where the um, application the, the intent of artistry. Mm. Because when we make films and when we make photographs, those of us, and when you do music and when you shoot, you have an intent that might be just purely narrative, but it also is metaphoric. Right. You know, this is why many, the directors I like working with, like film, like looking at the world as a metaphor. Because otherwise, I might as well just be outside, you know? Right. <laughs> looking at stuff. Looking at stuff and putting my own movie together. So the metaphor of the emotional moment is what's lacking in that stuff, you know, by the odd compilation of a million other previous things. And I don't know if it has a button that says, this makes me feel good right now, so therefore <laughs> I will go now, you know? Right. But that's part of what we do, though. We do that as artistry. We go, this, we might not understand why it makes us feel good or why it makes us feel horrible or horrible. I mean, that's why horror films is such an interesting genre to shoot, to go back to Cabinet of Curiosities, is that the horror film is a genre um, which, for the most part, is an allegory about something in a human existence that you can translate, you know, be it fear of dying, oop, zombies, um, <laughs> being fear of murder, oop, slasher, whatever that might be, they, they, they all of them tend to be really deeply rooted in in a, in a human condition in your uh in your episode bodily autonomy well yeah well two things one of them is morale um mortality that's how it opens up guy's dying yeah you know we kind of feel like he's dying you know right a little conversation about he's dying i got months to live blah 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 the stars and like you said body autonomy and what is after death and what is immortality Mm. You know, so the, I mean, it's like, you know, so all that gets shoveled into this thing and you get a gory movie about somebody opening up their own chest. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, um, but getting back again to be a little bit more um, precise about that camera or whatever is, again, what is the intent of the artist? You know, it's like, you know, man, you playing drums and somebody putting a drum track down as a drum machine is just two different worlds. Yeah. And I've, I've played with the drum machines before and it's not, it doesn't even sound the same. It's like some, you know, my fingers don't do it the same way my arms do. It's, it's because just your arms matter. are connected because ultimately it's connected to your heart. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah ultimately yeah. it's connected to something you're listening to. And if you're not listening to that person at the time, it's something you actually are emotionally feeling in the moment. You know, uh, that'd be anger, joy, pain, whatever that might be. You know, I'm pissed off at the director moment, whatever that might be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a little deep, but anyway, what is what it is? Hey, deep, deep thoughts are good. Uh, for me, actually, when I was a kid, the song that made me go, oh, drumming has feeling beyond like the like heavy rock and metal tracks I was listening to was Since I've Been Loving You by B.B. King. Because mm. that 
guitar, obviously mm. the guitar there is incredible. Mm, mm, but the, mm, mm. or no, sorry, fucking Led Zeppelin. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, but I was listening to. I actually got to see BB King in uh, in uh, mm. Santa Rosa, which was incredible. But uh, yeah, since the uh, John Bonham, since I've been with you, uh, that drumming felt soulful in a way that I hadn't <laughs> heard in the more precise stuff of the nineties. But BB King was. Yeah. I was listening to a ton of BB King. <laughs> well, but all of that, I mean, I felt so full, and then it felt. I mean, there's a million ways to describe it, and you know, and sometimes it's, and sometimes it's deliberately lacking, mm. right? It, within a piece that you don't want it to feel that way, you want it to be as possibly mechanically, as mechanical as it can possibly be to play against something else, another instrument, and vice versa. But yeah, it's that interesting thing about where I go, hmm, interesting, interesting. And it goes back to imagining the image, imagining this track, imagining the music, understanding here what it means, and then translating that. And I don't know if all, all of that comes forward when you just arrive somewhere, you turn on a monitor, and you have to kind of recall where am I supposed to be? Right. How, and yeah. how am I going to find it? You know? Yeah. so often it's turn on light, turn on light, look, make that light glass, turn on, look, turn off that, you know, rather than intuition is the um, product of experience. That's a good quote. I'm, I mean, the one that I'll that ask, I love. That's That's what I'm saying. Uh, that'll be the pull. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Now, the, the trick I always pull is I have a color meter and a light meter and I'll do everything. And then, the, like, the, you know, especially with corporate clients, they're like, are you going to set up the camera? And I'm like, yeah, in a second. Do, 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 do. Oh, yeah, and yeah, then, yeah, and then I go, I, boom, boom, done. And they're like, well, how? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. <laughs> of course you do. And you go, wow, well, how'd you know? Well, guess what? Um, yeah, it is that. It is that kind of thing. And But also, um, it is freeing. It's freeing because in the moment you're creating uh, yeah. without having to check on something. You know, it's not, yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's the same as if you were trying to imagine listening to Keith Jarrett piano, the Cone concerts, right? And realizing that every eight bars, you had to go back and check if it's, if, if it sounded. Did everyone hear that? Yeah. Did everyone hear that? Or was my moaning too loud or whatever the fuck you want to say about it? You go, well, that's not the creative process. The creative process is like, you know, like we're right Start writing. Do that. You know, don't don't write and then edit and write and edit. Just write. Anyway. Yeah. Wow. Um. So. I, I I hate to cut this off because I feel like oh, it's no. go for another hour, but I unfortunately do have another interview. So good. We'll give whoever it is my regards. <laughs> uh, it was a really uh, nice chatting with you, and you have my email. Uh, I think, right. I, oh, I'm I sure I can yours. get it. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, remind me, and I'll hook you up to chat with GV Garrett. Because, like I yes. said, it's a fascinating. I mean, I don't know if there's an agenda to what you do, but if you want to talk about camera movement and the admin of the steady cam, they're a really cool dude. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. a buddy might actually. Do you know Rob Verona? No, steady cam operator. He does a lot of live television stuff, but he's like, apparently, he says that he brought steady cam to live television. And I've always wanted to spot, yeah. And I've always wanted to spot check him on that. I'm like, I don't know enough steady cam, <laughs> deep steady cam operators to figure that out. But what year would that be? I don't know, probably the early 90s. There's an amazing thing. I'm thinking Vittorio, um, 
lit it. Bertolucci directed it. The conformist. It was a lot. It was, I think it was, you know, an opera mm. live in something like 15 or 20 venues across Rome. What was the opera? It's amazing to look at. And, um, and the steady cam going from one place to another and cross cutting. So, I mean, they literally, Oh, that's cool. And like you would take somebody into a carriage and then bring them to the house and have another camera ready to do that thing while the steady cam went upstairs and grabbed that coming down the hallway. And they, I mean, just the, the, just the interesting, um, pressure of creativity of big, cause you know, I mean, I know we gotta go, but being in performance is way different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, well, right. I will say when you're done with uh, this project, we'll just have you right back and we'll All right. pick up. Cool. I'll see you later. Take care. Thanks brother. Take care. Frame and reference is an Owlbot production. It's produced and edited by me, Kenny McMillan and distributed by pro video coalition. As this is an independently funded podcast, we rely on support from listeners like you. So if you'd like to help, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash frame and ref pod. We really appreciate your support. And as always, thanks for listening.